I want you with me to imagine a drummer, but not just any drummer. I want you to imagine Phil Collins playing in the air tonight. Or if you prefer, imagine the gorilla from the Cadbury chocolate ad playing the song. Whichever one you prefer, imagine something in the air. And you know how it starts, right? Real quiet. The drums are electronic and they're mixed down into the background. It is the art of subtlety. But then... At three minutes and 15 seconds, what happens? The fill hits, you know, I can feel it. You know, it's amazing. And the song becomes epic only when the rhythm kicks in. Only when the, the, the drums and the bass find their groove does the song really find its rhythm. And I believe this is an important part of human identity. We crave rhythm. When we listen to music, our ears want more than just build-up. Right now, I'm loving this television show called The Good Life. Has anyone watched The Good Life? No, no one. Okay, well, two people. And there's this character, though, named Jason. He's from Jacksonville, Florida. And he's everything you would ever imagine Jacksonville, Florida to be. And he says in one of the episodes, this is my vision of hell. It's being at a Skrillex concert but the bass never drops. And you just think, oh, that would be terrible because Skrillex is terrible to begin with. But he has a point. Our ears desire more than just build up, more than just filled. We desire a rhythm. And that's because humanity desires a rhythm to life. In an article on our blog this week, Preston wrote about that moment when you're running and your pace matches the tempo of the song and you find the groove. I have no idea what he's talking about. I've never experienced that. But it sounds about right. We have these moments where we feel like we're in a rhythm, where life is moving in the right direction. And even if it's not perfect, there is a rhythm moving us forward. And that's why we've written this book, Rhythms of Life, which we just talked about in the announcements. It's designed to help us discern the rhythm that God has for us. If you've ever wondered, how do I become more like Jesus day after day. That's why we wrote this book. It lays out some of our core convictions about what it means to find that rhythm here and now in this cultural moment. And so today we're also beginning a new sermon series called Rhythms of Life to explore the principles behind this book. And, and the gist of it is this. We believe Jesus has a rhythm for our lives. And it can change tempo and speed and intensity, but there is always a rhythm. And as we follow Jesus, as we walk in his ways, he leads us up, in, out, with, and at his own pace, Godspeed. These are the five rhythms, up, out, in, with, and at Godspeed. And in this series, we're going to take each of these rhythms one by one over the next five weeks. And today, we're going to start with the rhythm up or upward. And this might be familiar because this is language we use in our community groups. But here is the idea that drives our upward rhythm. We are called to intentionally move onward and upward toward Christ. We're called to move intentionally onward and upward toward Christ. If you have a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. If you don't own a Bible, take one of the great church Bibles home with you. Everything will also be on the screen. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, this is St. Paul writing to an urban church in the ancient city of Philippi. And here's what he says. But one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the one thing you do with your life? I'm a son, I'm a pastor, I'm a father, I'm a friend, I'm a writer, I'm a musician, I'm a graphic designer, I like to think I'm a barbecue connoisseur. You know, I have many roles, and with each role, many activities. You know, life is complex for me, and it is surely for you. Can we reduce it down to one thing? Yes. Is there a harmonious thread that weaves your whole life together? When you reach the end of your days and people recollect about your life, what's the one thing they'll remember about you? As friends and family sit around a table sharing stories about who you were, what is the common theme that's going to emerge? What is the one central task, the one central work, the one central purpose of your life? Oprah knows hers, of course. To be a teacher and to be known for inspiring my students to be more than they thought they could be. Yes, Oprah's going to be remembered like, you get a car and you get a car, but many of us are going to remember her for her desire to teach. Consider Sir Richard Branson's to have fun in my journey through life and to learn from my mistakes. Oprah and Branson can articulate their singular purpose, their true north, what guides them as they make decisions about they will and won't do in life, what defines who they are and who they hope to be in the world. In our passage today, St. Paul lays out for us his purpose, the one thing he wants to accomplish in his life, and it's this, he wants to press on toward the goal of the prize of this upward call of Christ Jesus. Simply put, onward and upward to Christ. That's the one thing Paul wants to accomplish with his, with his life. Onward and upward to Christ. It's quite similar to the prayer of King David in Psalm 27. David prays, one thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. As you've likely heard, the evangelist Billy Graham died this past week at the age of 99. And Christianity Today released a very inter interesting interview with Billy Graham's pastor for the past 15 years, who had the opportunity to meet with Billy Graham once a week uh, to, to pray for him. And he said, in these weekly meetings, every time Billy Graham would ask this, he would ask me to pray that God the Spirit would fill him to the extent that he would be totally hidden behind the cross and people would only see Jesus. And surely, even for all the complexity of his life, Billy Graham will be remembered for that. This was his prayer. This was his desire. This was his yearning. This shaped and marked the focus of his life. This was the one thing. And so I want to ask you, do you have this crystallized focus? Do you have a one-thing purpose like St. Paul or King David or Billy Graham? 
And you might be thinking, perhaps we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to the religious elites. You know, the apostle to the Gentiles, so, you know, uh, to a world-renowned evangelist, to a king. But our up-rhythm, the upward rhythm, is an acknowledgement that each and every single follower of Jesus is called to share this central task, onward and upward toward Christ. Onward and upward toward Christ. If we can be remembered for one thing, we want it to be Jesus. If we can have one prayer answered, it's to dwell with God and to enjoy his beauty. This is what it means to live our lives upward. Perhaps another way of thinking about this is asking, what do you want your last words to be? Because last words, they matter. For example, the dying words of the politician uh, Winston Churchill were this, I'm bored with it all. <laughs> or the dying words of Steve Jobs, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Or the dying words of the reformer John Wesley, the best of all is, God is with us. When you've reached the end of the road, when you've met your end, what's the last thing you want to be thinking about? Is it the drudgery of life? I'm bored with it all. Is it the beauty of life? Oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Or is it Jesus Christ? The beauty that God is with us. But this sort of focus, this sort of one thing mentality, it means that other things have to be left behind. You see, you might prefer to be remembered for your accomplishments or the business you started or the companies you worked at or your net worth or your contribution to society or the things you wrote or the people you raised or the policies you established or the innovations you made. You might want to be remembered for what you have done and for what you've contributed. And if you could ask one thing from God, if you have a moment of honesty with yourself, if we all have a moment of honesty with ourselves, if God said, you can ask anything of me, you can have one thing, it might not be God that you ask for. It might not be. It might be a good thing. It might be a meaningful thing, but it might not be God. If we're going to live upward, if our entire purpose is going to be the pursuit of Jesus, then we have to emulate another part of St. Paul's life in this passage. Look at verse 13. It begins with these words, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. If we want to live upward, we have to forget many other things. You see, Paul's happy to forget what lies behind. Now, it's not that he's put them out of his memory altogether because he's just spoken about them in the chapter. He has something else in mind, but he says, look, I had all these reasons and confidence to boast. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had an impressive religious and spiritual resume. He had the right training. We read elsewhere that he read with a famous, uh, studied with a famous rabbi, Gamaliel. Which is like saying, I studied with Roger Revel at Cambridge. You know, this is a big deal. And before his life with Christ, Paul strove for a lot of things. He had ambition. He knew where he wanted to be in society, what rank he wanted to have, and how he wanted to be known. 
But now he forgets all of these things. He puts them all behind them. They no longer define him. What does it mean for each of us to forget what lies behind as we pursue the one thing? To adapt St. Paul for my own purposes? If someone thinks they have reason for their snobbery, check out mine. I emerged top of my class, was employed at a top advertising agency in Canada, became an award-winning creative director, and was featured in magazines. Defiantly of the tribe of cooler than thou, as to hipsterdom, many tattoos, a snob of snobs in regard to culture, and elitist. As for zeal, persecuting comic sans. <laughs> as for righteousness based on the standards of good design, faultless. <laughs> but none of these things matter. None of them matter anymore. They truly don't. They are entirely insignificant. When I die, I don't want to be remembered for being featured in a magazine. I don't want to be remembered for my resume or my skills or my talents or my terrible tattoos, and I have lots of those. They don't mean anything before the God of the universe. Not if they were pursued for my own sake alone. What St. Paul means when he says forgetting what lies behind is that all these former things, all these things that used to shape how he saw himself, his identity, his place in the world, they no longer shape his identity as his primary identity. They no longer determine who he is. Rather, Paul presses upward. He presses on for the prize. And what is this prize? It's a very complicated sentence the way we translate it, but it's essentially this. The prize is Jesus Christ himself. He is pressing on for Christ, to receive Christ. And so now it's Jesus who defines his life, his purpose, his aspirations. That's all he lives for. And this sort of religious zeal might be causing many of you some pause. It causes me some pause, if I'm honest. Is this truly desirable? To be this sold out for your religion? But when I pause and when I dwell in this space, this space of hesitation and, and wondering if this is what I really want, I realize something. This check in my gut or this check in my spirit, this pause is an acknowledgement that this is costly. This is costly. If I'm going to live upward, I have to leave behind my image. I have to leave behind my goals. I have to leave behind everything things I might actually want, things that I might actually want to cling to, things that might actually not be bad in and of themselves. Is Jesus Christ really worth that? Now, I can't say what striving towards Christ will look like for you. It'll look unique to your life and the story God's writing in your life. But I do know that it will mean leaving some things behind or reordering other things around the centrality of who Jesus is. Is it worth it? Why did Paul do it? Why did King David do it? Why did Billy Graham do it? Why did John Wesley do it? Why do millions of people accept this costly call again and again and forget everything that they knew prior and reorder their lives around this Jesus of Nazareth? It's really quite simple. Look at verse 12 here in Philippians chapter 3. I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Jesus made Paul his own. Jesus has made me his own. Jesus has made you his own. And if you haven't experienced that reality yet, he wants to make you his own. When you belong to him, you belong to the author of your soul, the perfecter of your life, the person who loves you so much that he came into the world to remove every barrier there might be between you and the God of the universe. You belong to the person who loves you more than you could ever love yourself. You belong to the person who wills more good for your life than you could ever will for yourself. And this is grace. I like what Klein Snodgrass, which let's just pause and acknowledge great name. Klein Snodgrass writes about grace. He says this, grace is not just a feel-good word. It's not. Grace is not just a feel-good word. My best definition of grace is this. Grace is not something God gives us, but God giving himself to us. This is what changes our identity. Do you understand the beauty of that? God desires to give himself entirely to you. The God of the universe wants you to have him. And in order for that to happen, he sent his son into the world to forgive our sins, to erase everything that stood between us and God so that we can receive God entirely. Grace, said Snodgrass in this quote, changes who you are. It transforms your identity. And if this is true, then of course, you're going to press on to make him your own. During a season of struggle, uh, where I was really wrestling with this deep aspiration I have that relentlessly doesn't go away, I want to have a name for myself. I want to be known. I want to be a big deal. It just doesn't go away. And in a season where I was really asking, like, is my life ever going to amount to anything? A mentor of mine said to me, no matter if you succeed or fail, you already have the prize, Alistair. No matter if you succeed or fail, you already have the prize. It's a brilliant thought. No matter what will come, God is our prize. No matter failure or success, God is our prize. Be it surprising changes of plans or the shattering of dreams of, or if everything we ever hoped for comes to fruition, still, God is our prize. He is our prize. But we don't move upward towards this prize by accident. It takes an intentionality. I read the newspaper the other day and I just discovered that the Olympics were on, Winter Olympics. Pretty cool. And um, nobody arrives as a competitor by accident. It takes intentionality, a lot of intentionality. You know, nobody's going to win bronze, silver, or gold by accident. I looked it up. The average Olympian trains six hours a day, six days a week, 12 months a year. The average Olympian consumes 1.1 million calories a year, which is the equivalent of eating three Christmas dinners a day. The average Olympian has been working toward their goal for 11 years. It does not happen overnight. This sort of training is unfathomable to the average person, but that's only when you look at the work rather than the prize. All of these Olympians knew they wanted to go to the Olympics. They wanted to compete at this international level. 
They had a vision and a purpose, but in order to attain that, guess what? They had to forget a lot of things. They couldn't live a normal life. Normalcy wasn't an option for them. Their entire lives needed to be reordered around this purpose. It's the same for us. We forget what lies behind and we intentionally reorder ourselves around this upward call. You know, our Anglican heritage, or if you look at the Christian monastic tradition, they have a tradition called a rule of life, which was simply creating an intentional vision for your pursuit of Christ. And we want to continue in this. We're just calling it a rhythm of life rather than a rule of life because a rule can become inflexible, where a rhythm has movement to it. But the idea is the same. How do I intentionally keep Jesus at the center of my life and live out of the beautiful plan that God has for me and those around me. And we need to be intentional about this. Because it doesn't happen by accident. You see, one of the most common struggles I hear when I meet with many of you pastorally, and I assume it's, it's a struggle for many of us, I struggle with the disciplines. I'm not reading scripture as much as I think I should. I'm not praying the way I think I should. I struggle with discipline. But I'm not always convinced. Some of you do, and we, we can talk about that, but many of you think you struggle with discipline, but you don't. Because many of you have accomplished incredible things. Many of you have run marathons. Many of you has, have finished major degrees. Many of you have gone out and found job after job after job. Many of you show that you can set an intention and have the disciplines it takes to achieve that aim. And so your issue is not whether you can be disciplined or not. The issue is whether the prize or the goal is big enough and desirable enough to reorder your life around it. See, if your spiritual disciplines are lacking, the, the goal then shouldn't be to double down and work harder. Your vision needs to expand. You need a bigger picture of Jesus, a more compelling picture of Jesus. The Jesus who we see in the Gospels, who's full of compassion and mercy, who moves toward the world with love, who sees people and always treats them with dignity, even if he challenges them. You need a bigger picture of Jesus. And as your vision of Jesus conforms to what's true about him, the spiritual disciplines will follow suit. But stepping back, there's a few ways this upward rhythm shapes our communal life together. We want to be defined as a, a community going up, a community onward and upward toward Christ. On Sundays, this is why our service is structured around the word proclaimed and the sacrament received, around preaching and around the table. You see, the goal of our sermons is not just to give some information or some life lessons. The goal of a sermon at this church is to present Jesus, to make him as clear as we can and give you the opportunity to respond to him now rather than later. Whether you follow him now or not, whether you followed him for a long time or you have questions, the sermon is to say, this is who Jesus is. Will you respond to him today? But one of the most tangible ways of responding to him is the bread and the wine of this table. It's coming forward with faith and saying something more is happening here. That in coming to this table, I'm being unified with Christ. I'm participating in his very presence. I'm going to be nourished 
by him. The whole point of this service is to respond to Jesus so that we can be sent out into the week. You see, faith doesn't take place just on Sundays. It's a minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, month by month, year by year pursuit. That's why we stress community groups the way we do. You need that community to run alongside you, to pace themselves with you, to encourage you, to help you. That's an important part of any rhythm. This is why we stress the daily offices. As imperfectly as we may keep them, we need those moments in our day where we're reminded there's more to my life than just getting tasks done. There's a God who's walking with me. This is why we stress the Sabbath. You weren't made to just be busy and, and work yourself to death, but to enjoy the God who wants you to rest and enjoy him and his creation. And I could go on and on about different disciplines, and, and that's why we've created this resource. We hope that if you want to learn more about that, you have an avenue. But of any discipline, we have to ask ourselves, any practice in our lives, does this lead me toward Jesus or away from Jesus? Anything that occupies our time in a frequent and large basis, we have to ask, does this lead me toward Jesus or away from Jesus? Does it foster a warmness and kindle a love or does it cool the flames, so to speak? And I think the problem that many of us face is that we're living in the wrong story. We live in a world that tells us life is about you and your consumption and shaping your life to be exactly the way you would like. And we fail to practice discernment. We don't ask ourselves, hey, when I watch this entire show in one week, one day, how is this shaping me? When I do this habitually, how is this changing my worldview? The things I download, the things I eat, the things I wear, the stories that I live into, how is it shaping me? And unintentionally, we're shaped where the story is. The world revolves around us, and it can be tailored to our personal preferences. And so then you come once in a while, and you hear a service say, it's not about you, and we don't know how to live in that. No wonder our hearts feel dull. We don't know how to live in a world where we're not the center of it because all week we're living in the world where we're the center of it. So we have to be discerning. We have to ask of all these things, what is this fostering in me? And I want to be clear, not everything you do is bad. There's a lot of things you can do that are good, but we need to be discerning. But even more importantly, I think we need to heed this warning by Charles Spurgeon. I love this. I must take care above all that I cultivate communion with Christ. For though that can never be the basis of my peace, mark that, it will be the channel of it. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying all the intentionality you put towards pursuing Jesus, all the disciplines, they're important, but they're only a channel. They only open you up to him. The disciplines themselves are not what gives you peace, but the person they open you up to. Prayer, for example. Prayer will give you peace, not because you're praying, but because it's opening you up to Jesus who gives you peace. Reading scripture will give you life, not because scripture gives you life, but because scripture opens you up to the one capable of giving you life. See, the, dis the disciplines are the channel, not the end. 
The disciplines support our upward pursuit of Christ, but don't replace the relationship with him. And so while the disciplines matter, they really do. While intentionality matters, they're only aids that help us live in an ongoing relationship with Jesus, live in an upward direction. But as we live our lives upward, and I want you to pay attention here, as we live our lives upward, we do so in light of the profound promise that begins this letter of Philippians. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God has given himself to you and it's not, he's not going to let you lie dormant. He will bring your life into the fullness of what he desires. But he does ask you to participate. But when you understand that, it's a joy to participate. Of course, you're going to give yourself to the God who has entered into your life and shown you grace upon grace upon grace. And so this is my question. Do the rhythms of your life, the habits of your life, the practices of your life, do they foster this upward call? When your life ends, what are you going to be remembered for? Will there be a harmonious thread all the way through? See, the core rhythm behind our rhythms of life is this. Upwards. Being onward and upward towards Jesus Christ. Onward and upward towards Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made us his own.